uh, in view of studying the sermon. Uh, let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. We are in Acts chapter 25. Uh, we are in our second week in the city of Caesarea with Paul the prisoner. And as you all remember from last week, uh, Paul the Apostle was, was in Jerusalem, uh, and he was taken to the city of Caesarea where he stood trial before the high elect council, the delegation that was sent from Jerusalem some 60 miles to the northwest to the city of Caesarea where Paul the prisoner stood before Marcus Antonius Felix to face charges that were brought against him. Uh, this is now Paul's second year. Uh, he has been in the city of Caesarea for over two years, which is strange. It's kind of fast-tracked in the narrative. What we cover in two weeks really was a couple of years of Paul's life. And as you remember from last week, they brought some, some pretty damning accusations presented by the silver-tongued uh, attorney, Roman attorney, rhetorician, by the name of Tertullus. In fact, he brought three uh, pretty alarming accusations. The first was that Paul was a plague spreading uprising and riots around the Roman world, that he was literally a virus that needed to be eradicated. Second accusation was that Paul was the ringleader of this new strange religion. And then finally, that Paul had broken the unbreakable law in Jerusalem. Now, each accusation alone as it stood was, was sufficient for the sentence of death in a Roman court. That is, of course, if they were found to be true. And as you remember from last week, Paul masterfully defended and carefully and methodically addressed each accusation, showing that they were pure fabrication uh, of the highest order. In fact, last week, uh, we got to know uh, Governor Felix, uh, whom history does not exactly remember in the most positive of light. But we, we found, uh, discovered a strange revelation, that this Felix, who was known as being quite corrupt and brutal, knew quite a bit about Christianity. In fact, in his knowledge of Christianity, treated Paul to a legitimate level of grace, tabling entirely the accusations by the delegation, sent them back to Jerusalem with their tail between their legs, and gave Paul quite prominence uh, in Herod's palace at Caesarea. And so for two years, Paul lived there. He had friends and, and fellow believers that would visit him there at Herod's palace. In fact, over that two-year period, Paul was often summoned uh, to speak with both Felix and his wife Drusilla about the Christian life. But then we read kind of these troubling words at the end of chapter 24, the words of the forgotten, uh, the words of those who may feel like the pawn of somebody else's pleasure or purposes or plans. Uh, we read that when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. We're going to see that phrase twice this morning. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And so there he is, he's remaining. Uh, as we talked about last week, he must have been scratching his head like, Lord, you told me I was going to go to Rome, but now here I am through this succession still in prison. Now, what we probably don't know is in the year 59 AD, there was a major uprising in the city of Caesarea. And Marcus Antonius Felix put that uprising down with such brutality that literally Rome was flooded with correspondence from the region and specifically from Jerusalem speaking of his brutality. And so Emperor Nero uh, issued a decree of succession that Portius Festus would replace Felix almost immediately. And we see that at the end of chapter 24. Now, Portius Festus came in very quickly and began to try to build relationships back up with the Jewish people that had eroded under Felix. 
I'm not going to go into great detail on Portius Festus. In fact, we could just call him Portia. He's briefly mentioned in the narrative. He's used for a very specific purpose, and then he drifts back into history. But we see early in the verses of chapter 25, this newly appointed governor is going to be used to try to rebuild what had been lost under Felix's reign. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he wastes no time. He immediately goes to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And we're going to discover that after two years, they're beating the same drum. Their passion to see the blood of Paul spilled has not abated in the least. In fact, it has increased. It says, And the chief priests and principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem why? Another clandestine attack. They don't change their approach at all. They're planning to ambush and kill him on the way. I wonder, as I was reading this, if it was the same 40 knuckleheads who swore they wouldn't eat and they wouldn't drink until they had killed Paul. Well, two years had passed, so if they kept to their oath, they're dead. Um, but imagining they probably didn't keep to their oath, they're probably the impetus behind this particular plan. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. So I don't know if he was able to see between the lines of their request and their duplicity, but he intended to go back to Caesarea shortly. So in verse 5, he says, So let the men of authority... Come down with me, and if there's anything about the man, let them bring charges. And so again, we see a delegation the High Jewish Council sends to Caesarea. We don't get a large amount of content as far as the accusations. And so as the reader, we are left assuming they brought the exact same accusations. They had nothing more to levy against Paul. Paul most likely brought the exact same defense, and it ended the exact same way. Festus was unable to rule whether uh, right or wrong. He didn't have enough information. There was no evidence. But, interestingly enough, Festus, verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor. That is the second time we've seen that phrase uh, in two chapters. What we don't realize is how much pressure the Jewish high council exerted it and how much power they really had over the Roman leadership. There was a vested interest in keeping the Jewish high council and the Jewish people happy, and so Festus tries to do them a favor, and he says to Paul, hey, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? What would happen if Paul had conceded to that along the way? What would happen to Paul? He would have been ambushed. We're already let in on that as the, the reader. Verse 10, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He's like, I am the high, I'm in the highest court of the land. There's no need for me to go back to Jerusalem. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourselves know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything of which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. I'm not trying to preserve or protect myself. I'm already conceding to the fact that I'm going to face a martyr's death. But if there's nothing to their charges, Paul is going to leverage his Roman citizenship. He had every right to do this. The charges were such that he could make this appeal. In fact, no one can give me up to them. Why? Because I appeal to Caesar. And so as a Roman citizen, Paul had every right to have his case heard before the high emperor, Nero. And at this point in time, Nero wasn't quite the guy he turned out to be. And so I think Paul was assuming that it would be a, a pretty open-minded hearing before Nero. And so uh, Festus does only what he can do. At this point, he's powerless. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. But before Paul the prisoner, Paul the apostle, is placed on a ship for Rome, he'll have one more opportunity to share his story. Uh, and this time, 
Paul is going to share his story before some of the most esteemed dignitaries and leaders in the entire Roman region. For just as the trial was wrapping up between Paul and this high Jewish council, two dignitaries arrived in the city of Caesarea. The first by the name of Herod Agrippa II, and the second his sister by the name Bernice. Uh, In fact, they're a fascinating couple. I say it that way intentionally, and all of the icky it kind of uh, entails, it's like a Game of Thrones episode. I'm sure none of us watch that show, but if you do, you'll get what I'm alluding to here in just a moment. Chapter 25, verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, if you remember anything from last week as it relates to Felix's wife, Drusilla, all that applied to Drusilla applies to Agrippa and to Bernice because they were kin. In fact, Drusilla was their younger sister. And so just to kind of reorient our minds about this significant uh, family as far as historical narrative is concerned of the gospel in the book of Acts, King Agrippa II, Bernice, and Drusilla's family line. Their great-grandfather was Herod the Great, the one who instituted the rebuild of the temple at Jerusalem. In fact, it became known as Herod's Temple. He was also the same Herod that issued the edict in Matthew chapter 2 to have all children two and under put to death because he had heard the king of the Jews had been born and what we know as the death of the innocents. Their great uncle was Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist beheaded as he was very impressed with Herodias's daughter who danced before him. He gave her what she asked for. She asked for John's head on a platter. He's the same Herod who had him beheaded. And their father was Herod Agrippa who had the apostle James put to death. And so as a family, they were definitely a mess. And King Agrippa here in the context is the last Herod to reign. In fact, he has no children. He never married. Uh, In fact, he spent all of his time with his sister, and it was reported that they were more than brother and sister. But you all get that. So all that aside, they were in Caesarea before a short time before the conversation turned to Paul. Because Festus has this prisoner that he now has to send to Rome, and he's like, I don't even know what to say about the guy. And so as he's explaining the case to Agrippa, Agrippa's curiosity is piqued. He's like, I want to hear from this Paul. I would like to hear his story. And through that conversation, Governor Festus calls together all of the high-ranking Roman officials and local dignitaries, dignitaries to come and hear Paul speak about the Christian life. It's so fascinating to me how God uses circumstances and situations to bring the exact people he wants to be gathered to hear the gospel message. There is no way that Paul could have met individually all of these dignitaries and military leaders. God's like, that's cool. I'm going to gather them together under the edict of a king. Chapter 25, verse 23, the next day. It says in the text, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came in with great what? Pomp. We use that word a lot, don't we? What does that mean? What does the word pomp mean? What? Puffed up. Puffed pastry. What? Fanfare. Trumpets. Swag. That's good. They came swagging. I like that. They came, oh, let's just, okay, translation. They came in with great swag. <laughs> and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. J. Vernon McGee brings some light to these, this particular verse. I love what he writes. This was an occasion filled with pagan pomp and pageantry. It was a state function filled with fanfare and the blowing of trumpets. There was the tapestry and the tinsel. 
The function was attended by all the prominent personages of that section and the prestige of Rome. It must have been a scramble for people to be able to attend this occasion. They're scrambling this who's who event, fighting to get into this event to hear a gospel presentation, which I absolutely love. We have this who's who of local Roman leadership And once they were all gathered, Governor Festus brings the whole affair to order. And at that moment, Paul, the prisoner, is brought in. And it's at that moment where I am struck in the text by what would have been the obvious juxtaposition. Among this pomp and pageantry of Rome would have entered a lowly prisoner by the name of Paul. He would not have been dressed in fine apparel, no, in humble prisoner garb. He would have been escorted under Roman guard. In fact, he would have been chained to one soldier on his right hand and another soldier on his left. They would have removed those heavy chains and stepped to the side. And you you can almost hear like that, the heavy iron chains clinking against the the beautifully polished marble floor of this, this high Roman palace. Paul probably stood there for a moment and rubbed his wrists. And it was at that moment that Festus brought the assembly to order and brought the charges that were presented against him and then given the opportunity to speak. This is truly the high watermark of Paul's ministry. He was told that he was going to share the gospel among the Gentiles and he would stand before kings. Well, here it is. Uh, It's been said of Acts 26 that it is one of the greatest pieces of literature found anywhere. Uh, in fact, uh, is also one of the greatest examples of an evangelistic testimony that you'll find in the scriptures. Paul will share his story in very familiar fashion. In fact, it will be served in three distinct pieces like a pie, or three distinct pieces like a puzzle, or three distinct strophes like a poem. This is who I was before Jesus. This is how Jesus interrupted and changed my life. And this is who I am now because of Jesus. I find it fascinating that, yes, Paul is going to be sharing his own personal story, but who is the one who takes prominence and center stage? Jesus is the center of his story. So Agrippa said to Paul, chapter 26, verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. And at that, Paul stretched out his hands and he made his defense. He begins first by connecting with his audience. Verse 1, in rhetorical fashion, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg, listen to me patiently. Paul connects with his hearer. What we may not realize is that King Agrippa II himself was part Jewish, so he was aware of the customs and the controversies, and there were many. But then he asks for a patient ear. (laughs) Sometimes on Sunday I want to start there just saying, be patient with me. It's going to be a careful plod, but by the end of it there will be valuable content. Be patient with with the speaker. Be a patient listener. Paul requests their listening ear, and and he starts first by expounding uh, how Jesus intervened in his life. That's where he's going to begin. And and I I wanted to stress at this moment, we all have a pre-Jesus story. Now, some of you might be like, well, that's not true, Pastor, because 
I was in the church nine months before I was born. I was here before every service, and, and I've known the stories all of my life, and I grew up in a Christian family. Yeah, that may be true, but there is a moment in all believers' life where the faith becomes my faith. In fact, one of our attenders and members, longtime member and attender, esteemed uh, elder uh, uh, Tad Ferran, uh, shares his story. And, and as he did, I've just been forever marked by it. The Christmas of 1945, and I'm sure there's like two or three of us who can remember the Christmas of 1945, um, but he was on a train from Dallas to Chicago. He was starting basic training. And I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of traveling by train, but at night, when you're looking out the window, there's a point where it gets so dark that that actually turns into a mirror, and all you see is your own reflection. At 17 years old, on this train ride, he looked into this reflection of himself, and he says, that is the moment where it wasn't just my parents' faith. It wasn't just my grandparents' faith. It wasn't just the church's faith. No, it became my faith, where he said, yes, I am going to follow Jesus. All that preceded that is truly the pre-story. Verse 4, Paul shares his. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. Paul's like, look, as far as uh, being disciplined, I was the preeminent example of orthodox discipline. I was an academic of the highest honor. I studied under the rabbi of rabbis, Gamaliel, in Israel. Not only did he embrace his religion flawlessly, he also fiercely and fanatically pursued it. And he was under accusations of his apparent heretical deviation. In verse 5 or 6, Paul says, look, I stand here on trial of my, because of the hope of the promises made by God to our fathers, to which the 12 tribes hope to attain, and they earnestly worship night and day. He's like, look, what they seek after in ignorance, I have embraced in truth. And in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why do you think that's so incredible? I just recently was reading an article as the author described the scientific impossibility of resurrection. Why is it thought incredible by any of us that God raises the dead? Well, Paul says, I thought it was too incredible too when it came to Jesus. In fact, in verse 9, he says, Look, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often. This was like his, this his pastime. This was his recreation. Some of us go bowling. Paul went bowling for Christians. And what was it that he was trying to eradicate? Why did he attack these people? What's that? Because of Christianity. He did not receive Jesus as Messiah. And those who preached Jesus as Messiah were his enemies. He says, I punished them and I tried to make them blaspheme. That was literally his pride and joy to get a Christian to deny his Jesus. He goes on to say, like in raging fury against them, I persecuted them to every city. He literally calls himself a wild animal. He's like, I was a wild and ferocious beast. 
And in that ferocity, Paul expanded his attack from Jerusalem uh, well, to Damascus, verse 12. He goes, this is how Jesus interrupted my life. There is a moment in every believer's life where you can trace back, this is the day, the moment where he interrupted me. This is where I got changed. Where it went from being their faith to my faith. In this connection and in this purpose, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Why family was he headed to Damascus? To do exactly what he was doing in Jerusalem. Go bowling for Christians. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, this is so great, in the Hebrew language. Now, this is the third time in the book of Acts that Paul shares his testimony. Each time we get a little bit more detail. We are told that Jesus spoke to Paul in the Hebrew language, most likely Aramaic. So many of you might be asking, what language does Jesus speak? All of them. But he spoke to Paul in such a way that Paul would know that it was directly for him. There is time, there are times where you might be standing in a crowd and Jesus will speak specifically to you. He will use your language. It was the language of worship to Paul and of orthodoxy, his primary tongue. And the Lord said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, we have not seen this before in his testimony, but here Jesus is seen using an old Hebrew idiom, uh, kick against the goats. And because all of us are really familiar with oxen and plowing out fields with a, with a, with a, what do you, what do you pull? A yoke? What is it called? What do they pull behind them? The oxen. A plow. Yeah, I'm really familiar. You know, I've done so much plowing in my day. Um, no, I've never done any plowing. And so I had to do some research. And so basically what it means to kick against a goat is when an animal was first yoked, it would often kick against the yoke. And the animal would fight against the load that it was carrying. And in fact, there was a goad that was attached to the back of the load that would have a little spike on it. And so every time the animal kicked, it would feel the prick of that spike. And eventually the animal would stop what? Kicking. In fact, I just learned after first service because there was a guy who was here who actually plowed with oxen using a plow. And he goes, oh, by the way, once they were trained, all that a, a plow or farmer would have to do is tap the back hind of the animal to steer it one direction or the other because it was domesticated and it was brought under authority. Paul, why are you kicking against me? Why are you fighting against me? Another way of rendering this in contemporary vernacular, why are you beating your head against the wall? See, Paul was only hurting himself. And his rejection and attack and persecution of Jesus, well, not only was he hurting himself but others. And he's like, why are you rejecting me as the Messiah, the Savior? It's only hurting you. I could levy that same question to all of us today. I don't know our own personal hearts, but I feel like in a group this size, there's probably some of us who've been kicking against Christianity, fighting against it. My question for you and the Lord's question is, why are you fighting against it? Why are you beating your head against the wall? Why are you fighting against the Savior who desires to save your life? Why are you fighting against grace? Paul continues on. Verse 15, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand. It was time for Paul to take a stand. 
You'll see that phrase repeated throughout the whole section. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things you have seen me and to those to which I appear to you. Paul immediately receives his purpose. Did you know that God did not just call you to save you? Often the emphasis of evangelistic preaching is to get you saved, to have your soul saved. And while that is, a, that is a beautiful picture, the true purpose is that when you are saved, God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for your life. And one of the great privileges and joys as a follower of Christ is to discover that purpose. For Paul, it was to be a servant and a witness. He says, I will deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes. He's like, Paul, I'm sending you out to be a spiritual optometrist. You are literally going to preach the gospel, and through that proclamation, people will go from blindness to sight. In fact, to turn them away from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. You are to reach the lost among Israel and then specifically among the Gentiles. He was sent to open the eyes of the world. And you know what? He has fulfilled it. Countless thousands, millions have had their eyes open, and not just from his personal testimony, but think about this. How many of your eyes have been opened through the testimony of Scripture, Paul the Apostle penning the epistles? My eyes have been opened because of the purposes given to Paul. Paul moves to the third piece of his life, third slice of the pie, the third piece of the puzzle, the third strophe of the poem, and this is who I am now because of Jesus. Therefore, O King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I have been faithful. How has Christ changed your life, and how since then have you been faithful? But declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their, their repentance. I have lived a changed life, serving faithfully the one I once sought to destroy. My eyes have been opened. And he says in verse 21, and this is why, King Agrippa, and this is why you military leaders, and this is why all you who are gathered in this Roman hall, that the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, but it's okay. Yes, I was attacked, but you know what? To this day, I've had help that comes from God, and so I stand. At some point in our life, we stand for our faith, no matter what we face. And he testifies, I testify both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. He's like, look, I'm standing on what the scriptures teach, that literally the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, testifies to what is fulfilled in the New Testament, that the Christ, that Jesus must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and Gentiles, he would proclaim light that is salvation, salvation, salvation to all who would believe. That is our message. But we are all faced with the mocking and the laughing of people who think, that's ridiculous. <laughs> You're telling me you believe that fairy tale? In fact, up to this point, Festus held his tongue, but he could no longer. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. 
Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy. Oh, the great wisdom of this world that mocks and makes fun of our faith. You know what, family? I would rather be a fool in the world's eyes than be a fool before the Lord. To which Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. There are times where people will, will focus on you and they'll be like, this is irrational. You're telling me you believe in that? You need that crutch? You can reply, it is not irrational. It is truth. It is founded as, in, as history itself. The scriptures long foretold it. History is forever marked by it, and lives are continually changed through it. I'll say it again. The scriptures long foretell it. History forever is marked by it, and lives are continually changed through it. Oh, the arrogance of the ignorant. It is a heartbreaking sorrow when I see people roll their eyes and they laugh at the teaching of, of our faith. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me you believe that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days by the power of his word. You really believe that? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me what you believe. Wow. That does take a lot of faith. Comparatively speaking, what other options are there? When I look at the order of this world and I see how things are, are orchestrated and almost like, like a fine-tuned watch, I look at that and I go, there's a creator. That makes sense to me. When people laugh and they go, wait, you believe that book composed by men, this fairy tale of fiction? Yes, I do. I believe it to be truth. And you're telling me you believe the gospel that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Think about the improbability of resurrection scientifically. You're telling me that Jesus has risen from the dead. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Can somebody read that out for us? Turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Whoever finds it first gets to speak it out before the congregation. I don't hear any pages turning. Are you just waiting for somebody else to do it? Come on. Ah, somebody else has got it. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness and it's folly. <laughs> You're out of your mind. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power that not only rose Jesus from the dead, but will raise us from the dead. And so Paul then turns his attention from Festus to Agrippa. For the king knows about these things, and I, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this hasn't been done in a corner. Jesus was not crucified in a corner. He was crucified naked on a hilltop for the world to see. There was a reason the stone was rolled away from the cave so all could peer in and see it empty. This was not done in secret, but before humanity so all could see. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Because if you believe the prophets, you will believe the gospel. Paul says, I know that you believe. He is pushing Agrippa to place his faith in Christ. Agrippa said to Paul, you can imagine, he's got to keep up his mask, his pageantry, his pomp. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? 
and just see that smirk on his face. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Yes, in such a short time, I would desire for you all to believe in the gospel. At this, they had heard enough. Verse 30, the king rose, the governor and Bernice rose. They were all sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man's not doing anything deserving of death or imprisonment. In fact, verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And some of us are left going like, then why did he appeal to Caesar? He could have been set free. But check this out, family. He had no intention of being set free. He had no desire to be set free. He was a bondservant of Christ. His life was not his own. He'd been purchased at a price. And so for him, he was in chains to proclaim the gospel who he had just spoken before kings and military leaders. And heartbreak after heartbreak, there is no historical evidence that King Agrippa or Bernice or Festus or any of the military commanders came to Christ. We have no idea what happened in their heart of hearts. But they had no excuse. The gospel had been proclaimed. And again, Paul had no desire to be set free from chains. In fact, the next time he declares his, his testimony, it will be in Rome. But before he gets there, he'll have a short boat ride. <laughs> Quite the adventure. We'll jump aboard next week. Uh, some applications for us, though, uh, the passage that we have just studied. Now, the first application that comes directly out of this, this passage is sharing our story or your story. I prefer our. I think it's more inclusive. One of the most powerful messages that we possess is our own personal story. Um, I encourage you to think about this right now. How did Jesus interrupt and change your life? I think our story is best served up in, in three pieces like pizza or pie. I think it's served as three parts like a puzzle constructed or three strophes like a poem. This is who I was before Jesus this is how Jesus interrupted and changed my life. And this is who I am now because of Jesus. It may be my personal story, but family, who takes center stage? Jesus. If there's one story that I encourage you to get to know, let it be your own story. Uh, just this week, I had the privilege, uh, a friend of mine, we've struck up a, a friendship uh, through Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and he asked me if we, we could get together for lunch. I really liked the guy. I was like, yeah, you're, you're pretty cool, man. I want to hang out with you. And so we went and got pie together, pizza pie, that is. And so as we were sitting there enjoying this delicious pizza pie, and by the way, it was delicious. I love pizza. And some of you are thinking about pizza, but think about your story right now, please. Um, some of you are like, I'm going to go get pizza for lunch, right? Cheese? Pepperoni? Sausage? Would you all focus on the scriptures? Goodness, it's not lunchtime yet. Okay, so we're sitting there, and he's sharing his story. I asked to hear his story. Because you know what? If you can't listen to somebody else's story, don't share yours. If, if we don't care about people, don't share the message. Be, because it's not about militantly sharing our story. It's about actually loving people. So I'm listening to his story, and then he goes, can I hear your story? And, and you know what? It came out in three slices. This is who I was before Jesus. This is how Jesus interrupted and changed my life. And this is who I am now because of Jesus. And it was a wonderful lunch. 
And by the end of it, he's like, I can't wait to get together again. My prayer is that my new friend would become a believer. But you know what? If he doesn't, he's still going to be my friend. I want to encourage you to learn your story and to share it often. But I will say this. If you can share their, your story, if you can share your story, and there is no prominent place for Jesus, if Jesus does not show up at all in your story, and then you'll say, yes, but I'm a believer. My immediate question is, then why so little impact? The one who has literally brought life and sight to the blind and to the dead spiritually, the one who has literally changed history has had so little impact on your life, why so? Practice your story. Share it to those who are curious. It is one of the most powerful things you possess of what Jesus has done in your life. But if Jesus ain't a part of that story, there's a problem. You need to chew on that. Secondly, I say this intentionally to be uh, shocking a little bit. Evangelism can be sin. How many times have you heard a pastor say that? Uh, uh, never. First time. And what I mean by that is, it might be shocking, but any time we talk about sharing our faith, it can elicit memories of preachers who have uh, pushed us or, um, I don't know how else, prodded us to share the gospel with the world, to like militantly take the gospel out. Go attack with tracks or go drag someone down Romans Road, right? And I'm guilty of that. <laughs> in fact, as a, as a new believer and as early in my Christian life, I often did a lot of things spiritual things because I wanted to be a good Christian and I wanted to prove to God and to others that I was doing my job as a Christian. And it wasn't because I authentically loved God or because I authentically was being led by the Lord or authentically loved them through it. It was because I felt like I, I had to. Um, I can't say that I often cared who I was sharing the gospel with. I didn't care about them. I cared more about the message. And that kind of breaks my heart. I think about it. And yeah, I know that God uses our ungodly motivations. He uses all things, you know, he can bring about his purposes and good, but you know what? Our hearts matter. And it doesn't just matter with evangelism, but all aspects of service. It's truly our heart that he must increase, that we must decrease. That he is the one who is exalted in my life, that I am the one that is humbled and debased. That is a heart issue. And so I want to encourage you, as you share your story, please let it be out of a heart that Christ must increase. A true love for people and a true uh, submission to the Holy Spirit leading you. Uh, spend some time this week. Consider your motivations, not just in evangelism or Bible study, but consider your motivation in everything. Why are you doing what you do? What's motivating you? Why are you serving? Or why are you not serving, whether in the church or in the culture? And then finally, kicking against the goad. Um, I think some of us are continuing to reject Jesus. Uh, it's a choice. We willingly choose to kick against his grace and reject his salvation and continue to beat our head against the same old wall. And my question for you, friend, is uh, when are you going to stop kicking? When are you going to stop fighting? against the one who wants to save your soul. Uh, to that end, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your scriptures and the 
the opportunity that we as a church have to come under their teaching and there's been a lot discussed this morning and I feel challenged to grow and to come under the authority to place myself under your yoke and learn from you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that that ethic would permeate my heart, that you might increase, that I might decrease. I ask that, Lord Jesus, you would save. Save my friend, I ask. Save our friends and our family. I pray that you would use our story, it's truly your story, to reach and save the lost, open the eyes of the blind. I just want to take a moment to speak to you who are, who are here, who feel maybe a sense of frustration or, or maybe even you're being unfairly targeted. And you know if you're fighting against the Lord or kicking against his grace or refusing to believe. I mean, you know if that's happening in your heart. No one else needs to know. But I just have a question for you. When will you stop kicking? When will you receive his grace? And finally submit yourself to his goodness. Friend, please listen. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he has risen from the dead. And he is alive right now. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him, who trust in him, receive forgiveness of sins to be washed clean of sin. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart, into your life. You are sealed and baptized. You are forgiven. And you are a recipient of eternal life, sanctified by faith in a right standing before the Lord. If that is your desire this morning, I pray that you in the quietness of your heart would tell him he hears your heart. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I believe that you died for me and you were buried and you have risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. Welcome to the family of God. There's nothing greater and when Jesus interrupts our life, we are forever changed. Lord Jesus, you are the potter. We are the clay. Mold us for your purposes, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.